2: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. No. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
3: He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former
2: colony won the right to determine its own destiny.
4: If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality, and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to... Studiosweden.com, which is spelled S U D I O Sweden.com, and simply put in the code D T D when purchasing a pair of headphones. Hello, and welcome to Mid Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm the proud father that is Royfield Brown sat in the Bay Area where it's glorious, the sun is shining. And today we're joined by Salon's senior political reporter, Amanda McCart, to examine her new book, Troll Nation How Trump, a man with peak and resentment, won the highest office in the land. Hello, Amanda, how are you? Good, thanks for having me. Um, you're in Brooklyn right now. What's the weather like?
5: Uh, cold. Um, I'm a native Texan, so it's, I'm not quite used to and may never get used to the fact that winter seems to go until spring here, or until May, I mean.
4: That's kind of, kind of prompted one of my first questions. You're a Texan. You grew up in a conservative household uh, where you say that Fox News and Rush Limbaugh were omnipresent. Why have you left your people behind, Amanda?
5: <laughs> um that's a very good question. I mean, I think on some level I was always a little bit of a different uh bird. You know, I read a lot as a kid and I, you know, was drawn to kind of countercultural stuff to begin with. So I think I was born a liberal and my my family kind of knew it on some level. They were worried about it when I went to college and you know, flew the nest that the first thing that would happen would I would that would happen would I'd start be I'd start voting for Democrats and that of course is exactly what happened I remember my dad even saying you know Amanda um, it's just because you're going to a liberal arts college doesn't mean you need to become a liberal (laughs) I I don't think he really um, understood completely what the word liberal arts meant or the phrase liberal arts meant. But, you know, he turned out to be right and I was wrong. So what do I
4: know? Why is the word liberal become so demonized on right political leaning thought in the US? Why is it such a dirty word?
5: You know, I don't. It's been, it's tough to say. I mean, obviously my dad was using it as a dirty word when I was 18 years old, right? So this has been going on for a while, but I do think it's gotten worse. And I think that, you know, the most obvious culprit is Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, you know, AM talk radio, just generally just using it as a curse word, holding up, Liberals is this category of people to despise, um, who hate America, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, over time, I think that stuff like gets to people. Um, you know, that said, and i I really do try to address this in the book, i I caution against treating conservative audiences that have really become, you know, so hateful and single-minded about hating liberals, I caution against treating them as if they're just mindless Ottomans that have been directed by Fox News to think this way. I mean, I think they've certainly been encouraged by Fox News and other outlets to think this way, but I also think it's critical to understand that they were drawn to listening to Rush Limbaugh and watching Fox News because they, on some level, liked what they were hearing and wanted to get more of it. So it's it's a symbiotic relationship between audience and media on the right
2: when mexico sends its people they're not sending their best they're not sending you they're sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us they're bringing drugs they're bringing crime they're rapists she's crooked hillary don't you understand that This is one of the most crooked politicians in history. Would I approve waterboarding? You bet your ass I'd approve it. You bet your ass. In a heartbeat. And I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? If that's okay. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. Is there anybody you'd like to apologize to right now, yourself?
4: Uh, No. No? first line of your book is what kind of grabbed me i'm going to read it back to you the national tragedy that is the election of 2016 in which a conspiracy theory minded half-literate racist demagogue named donald trump managed to defeat the eminently qualified hillary clinton in the presidential race created its own mini media industry asking the question why how had this human troll with his mugging face orange coloring and pussy grabbing ways managed to beat someone who had a long career in public service and had clearly done her homework. How much is, is that sentence, is w- the way that you frame the argument of America now becoming a troll nation, part of the problem? By using the expression, by using words like mugging face, orange-coloured, both of them are incredibly apt and, and, and well-deserved. But isn't that part of the problem, that both sides of the political debate now rhetorically have descended in terms of the language that they use
5: this is a question that has come up a lot in this book because obviously um i enjoy using humorous insults and i've considered myself in the tradition of writers like molly ivans and other kind of Mm. political humorous in that way and my answer to it is that i don't think it's the same um You know, I think you can insult somebody without denying their humanity. I think you can satirize and mock somebody without demonizing them as a like and dehumanizing them, right? But I think more than that, I think that there's a categorical difference between how the left and the right has sort of approached this kind of political conflict. I think of insults, invective, and vicious satirical humor as dressing on the salad, as it were, for the left. And for the right, I kind of think that that's all that's left. And what I mean by that is that on the left, there are still ideas. And these kind of political rhetorical tactics are there to advance these ideas. There's this notion, you know... I make fun of Donald Trump because I think he is a threat to gender equality, racial equality, our economy, world peace, you name it. These are (laughs) a series of of values I hold that I'm willing to defend on their own terms. right? And I Mm -hmm. don't see that same thing coming from the right. I see on the right what's happened is that they feel like – And I think correctly feel that they've lost the cultural argument that they can't actually defend a lot of the ideas that used to motivate conservatism in America. And so all that's left is this resentment and anger and desire to just punish liberals and that I mean I think really explains the election of Donald Trump in a lot of ways. You know, the man is is valueless as a politician and as a person. He really is. He has nothing to redeem him. He's he's mean and ugly and he doesn't seem to believe in anything but like racism and sexism. He he's a weather vane when it comes to any like ideological arguments besides just this being this massive impulses of bigotry, right? And, and yet he was elected anyway. And all I can think is that, and I think there's a lot of evidence for this. It's not just me. I mean, you go on conservative Twitter blog, like Twitter's feeds and their blogs and their articles and over and over again, they characterize Donald Trump as a punishment that they've inflicted on the left, you know, just as an act of revenge, Right. And I think that that is a, a, just a very categorical difference. I, I don't see liberals making really foolish and ultimately self-defeating choices in an effort to punish conservatives and hurt them for no other reason. I very rarely see people go on the left, I'm going to make this political decision because it makes conservatives cry. And yet you see that argument every single day. in the reverse, from conservatives.
4: If you have a set of people who identify themselves as being American first and foremost, true Americans, and inherently they they are the inheritors of the mantle of that, if you then try and impose any level of equality to groups that historically have been excluded from that, view of being American, isn't it then understandable that there is some pushback? And if it is understandable that emotionally there is some level of unease or pushback, shouldn't we on the left at least try and acknowledge that and hold the hands of our conservative brethren through these turbulent waters where um, women are increasingly getting positions of power and influence in the workplace and people of colour are increasingly increasingly um, ditto doing the same?
5: No, I mean, it, first of all, I don't know how you could hold their hand through it, right? I, I think that that argument can be very condescending because it assumes that that the, the, the anger and fear that conservative that conservatives feel at watch, watching white male privilege be assaulted. Um, has some – that it's somehow just an irrational, childish fear. And I I don't think that there's any way for us to reach out and go, there, there, you know, (laughs) you clearly don't understand what's good for you and listen to me, I'm going to hold your hand. I kind of think that they would probably find that more insulting than just simply telling them to suck it up, grow up, and, you know – learn to live with it. And I, and also I, I also worry about what the handholding approach does for people of color and women and LGBT people, because what it suggests is that, that what is obvious and moral and right, which is your claim to humanity, your claim to be equal um, is somehow objectionable, controversial, and that other people's claim to be better than you somehow needs to be coddled, while you never got that kind of coddling. You know, <laughs> traditionally, like you know, oppressed people are not not only coddled, but they are you know oppressed. And I think that it's time to stop reinforcing these narratives where oppressed people are treated as lesser than, and even, even bizarrely in the service of trying to get them equality by saying, well, just for a little longer, we're going to treat your need for equality as somehow less significant than white people's need to be, you know, massaged through anti-racism, right? Does that make any sense?
4: No, listen absolutely and I, and I throw this question out there just just to get a response so and I, you know trying to do my my job as, as the podcast host. what what we can't have is me completely utterly agreeing <laughs> with every word that you say and throwing you nothing but, but softballs. but okay, the election of Donald Trump uh, came as a shock to most Americans, even Americans that voted for him that believed in him. And um, explain uh, the, how, what role technology has played in America becoming a troll nation.
5: That's a very interesting and open question that I think that will take a lot of time and a lot of research to find out. Um, mm-hmm. I really wish I had an answer, like a really definitive answer. I think we are getting more and more research that shows that fake news, Russian bots, social media did play a pretty significant role Um, certainly something like WikiLeaks um, using social media to disseminate conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton softened the voting public up to hear to believe that she was a criminal when she clearly wasn't and there was no evidence of that right Um, Mm -hmm. that said I do want to say that I feel that, and, and I try to argue in the book that I don't really think that social media invented these problems or these urges. I think it maybe made it easier for people to get a little buck wild with it. <laughs> but like ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, what's causing this, this rush of outrage and, and frankly, temper tantrum from the American right? Is much more a reaction to very real changes that they very much do not appreciate, but also don't know how to grapple with in an honest, forthright, or, or good faith manner.
2: As President Trump continues to respond to the FBI's investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election, we're learning more about other opportunities Russians are seizing on to stir up controversy in this country. For example, after last week's school shooting in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were killed, Twitter was flooded with messages tagged with words like Parkland and gun control and the name of the suspect. And much of this Twitter activity was directly tied to Russian accounts. With more on how Russia linked bots and trolls or using a tragedy to create confusion, we're joined by Aaron Griffith. She's a senior writer at Wired Magazine. Now, we can understand when it comes to political conversations, especially as rolled out in this indictment this last week, the Russian interest and influence. But why after a school shooting?
4: So if you look at the issue of Russian bots, trolls, etc., why is it that the right, people who are right-leaning were more susceptible to those fake messages. Why? Because the one thing which the, the studies uh, are, are telling us now is that um, the Russian disinformation campaign um, was um, was an equal opportunities one in that they did try and uh, troll the left as well. You know, Sorry, not, they did try and troll the right, sorry. Uh, but what, But the right-leaning bots were much more successful. Why is that?
5: I think twofold. Um, you know, I think that part of it is that conservatives have been sort of massaged into and kind of trained into believing misinformation for decades now. Um, it, it's and I I address this in the book, for instance, I think, you know, climate change denialism, for instance, is a conspiracy theory in which the denialists say that a, a worldwide conspiracy of scientists is hoaxing the entire planet to believe that climate change is real. That's a ludicrous conspiracy theory. And yet it is one endorsed by the majority of Republican politicians people in high levels of government, right? And I think that that kind of mainstreaming of conspiracy theory thinking sort of led a lot of ordinary conservative voters to feel a little bit more free in just sort of believing something because they wanted to. And then the other piece of this, I think, is, is that it does really kind of go back to my idea that in so many ways, the right has lost the argument, right? They've lost the argument about racial equality. They've lost the argument about traditional family values. They've lost these economic arguments. They've lost these environmental arguments and deregulatory arguments. And I can just go on and on. And I think that that alone has created the psychological willingness to sort of believe, you know, um, can I curse on your show? (laughs)
4: Absolutely. I think it's, it's
5: created a psychological need to believe bullshit, right? It, it's mm-hmm. the, it, when the truth is not serving their ends anymore, the lies become a lot more, um, attractive. And I think that's what's happened. It, it's, it's a, it's, they're willing to believe lies, and they've sort of been conditioned to believe lies. And I think that those two things wind in and out of each other and have, have for a couple of
4: decades now. Amanda, you use language and you use it kind of quite combatively. And you know what? It's somewhat entertaining to read it on the page, to see it on, on, on a post. And I think very few people on the left actually have that skill. Sometimes we are a little bit too earnest. Isn't the fact that a lot of right-wing commentary is actually inherently more entertaining than left-wing commentary and punditry because of the language used, and um, and that is something which people on the left need to learn—that to be more engaging with um, with their speech and with their dissemination of ideas. <laughs>
5: yeah I mean, I definitely think so and I will repeat a joke that got a big laugh at my event last night, which is I kind of feel like right now like right wingers read Solinsky's rules for radicals more than <laughs> than liberals do and and he had but you know they were smart to do so because he did have some insights about how to use humor trolling pranks, that sort of idea, those sort of things to to get attention. And now obviously his point was to direct those attentions towards progressive values. (laughs) But I, I, I do think we should get back more to the way that, that, that he was kind of thinking about these things and some of the yippies and, and whatnot in the sixties did, because I think that pleasure needs to be a part of political organizing. Um, You know, to use an incredibly earnest self term, to use an incredibly earnest term, you know, for self care reasons, if no other, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, people are human and they are going to be drawn towards those who seem fun and lively and funny. And the right gets this and they are not ashamed of it. And I think that it's wise for the left to to really think about that in, in depth. And and try to do more to, to have some fun and, and be funny. And we have better music. So, I mean, I think we're kind of ahead of the <laughs> curve already.
4: I, I don't know. I, I quite like a little bit of country music, me.
5: But <laughs> Some of the best country artists are, are on our team, you know.
4: <laughs> you know, I'm just using my British bias there by not understanding the genre, because you know what, to me, it, it, it all sounds the same, which is a dreadful thing to admit when that, that epithet is thrown at hip hop and uh, music of black, black origin all the time.
5: <laughs> oh, no, no worries. No worries. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's fair that a lot of it is pretty
4: conservative,
5: but a lot of it is not. A lot of it is not.
4: <laughs> anyway. Isn't the real power of Trump in his symbolism in that he he's just thumbing a nose to Um, to political correctness. And you kind of leading me down this path in believing that that he's just a a very powerful symbol, even though he's a hollow one. And it isn't really about kind of politics because to take another extract from your book, all right, so almost no other concept has there been a a greater gift to the American right as a myth of political correctness. This widespread contention in right-wing circles that that a censorious left has somehow disallowed conservatives nationwide to enjoy their First Amendment guaranteed right to be an arsehole. This belief that right-wing mouths have all but sewn shut by a Stalinist left play an enormous role in the the election of Trump. Isn't it that people just want to say whatever the hell they want to say and this man is saying it and people know he's a fool? But my God. You know, we are, we can, we still have this sense of being free to say what we want to say. To hell with everything else that he believes. We know that he's a philanderer. We know that he's a, a, a bankrupt many times over. We know that intellectually he's not at all gifted, et cetera, et cetera. But he just feels like our curmudgeonly uncle at that Thanksgiving uh, dinner party. And we love and we hating, but you know what is one of us? Isn't that what the American right have in Donald Trump?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it exactly. And you know, I what I want to kind of focus on in in that argument, and you hear it a lot, mm-hmm. is this notion that they are somehow not allowed to say racist or sexist or vile or vicious things or to lie openly right all these things that they clearly want to do and and like you said see in donald trump he does it he gets away with it that's really attractive but when i think about well what do they mean by i'm not allowed to well what they mean is somebody will criticize them and they can't defend what they did right It's not like they're getting Mm. thrown in jail for saying these things. And in many cases, it's not even like losing a job or anything. What it is, is you get either socially shamed or argued with and you can't defend yourself. And I find that very interesting kind of stance to take because it's, A, it, it comes from a privileged place, right? The notion that they should be allowed to say whatever they want but the left should not be allowed to say whatever we want. Right. And also it also gets back to my sense that they feel like they've lost the argument and now it's just nihilism and revenge. And what I mean by that is, okay, so you're, you're drunk uncle, right? And you say something stupid, like um, climate change isn't real or black people are born inferior. Right. And I, liberal niece, uh, and argue with you, and I say, oh well, here's the scientific evidence actually that climate change is real, and actually, you know, here's the scientific evidence that you know those i that Charles Murray's IQ theories are wrong, right? And you feel ashamed, and you feel like you can't defend this, you know, indefensible belief that you just offered. And it's that sort of that feeling that gets interpreted as I'm being censored, when they're clearly not what they're being is argued with, right? And what they're doing is they're losing the argument. (laughs) And what Donald Trump offers is permission to believe it doesn't matter if you lose the argument, you can just be a big old bully and just stomp on your opponents anyway. And and sure, maybe at the end of the day, they are right, but it's a pirate victory because they're just going to destroy, you know, everything around us in this country by, you know, these actions, if that makes any sense.
4: No, absolutely. But if your arguments on, say implicit racial inferiority are uh, one of the foremost tenants of the whole country they're hard just to tear down and just uh, uh dismiss aren't mm-hmm. they in so you kind of understand old drunk uncles um unease when you've dismantled that argument systematically because Dare I say it, when America was great, those arguments were not challenged.
5: Yeah. No, and that's exactly what's changed, right, is they are facing challenges and and they don't have an answer for it and they want to return to this time when they didn't need to be right in order to be right, if that makes any sense. And I think – and it's frustrating, you know, for everybody else, you know, not only because – Empiricism should have some value, but also the lack of empathy there, right? I think that it, it, I have very little sympathy for somebody's feelings being hurt because they're wrong and somebody's saying they're wrong, when someone like me throughout their whole life has been told they're wrong, even when they're right, just by virtue of who I am, right, as a woman and and being treated as inherently. Uh, less intelligent, inherently incapable of 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 rational thought and you know that sort of thinking. And it, it it's 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 frustrating to me that somebody gets mad that they're wrong when so many other people have been treated like they're wrong, even though they're right and. I, I can sort of see, though, why there's an emotional breakdown on, you know, not just both sides, but sort of all sides of this kind of argument about politics in this country
3: right now. Before we dive into a set of facts and statistics that may boggle your mind, it's my duty to read you your Milo approved Miranda rights. You have the right to controversial opinions and speech. Yeah. You have the right to confront and to disagree with, to rebut and to question opinions that don't match your own. You have the right to do all of that without being told that you are violating a safe space. You have the right to reject the brainwashing forced upon you by professors that make Obama look like the aforesaid Che Guevara. And most importantly, you have the right to worship your dangerous family.
4: So Donald Trump is the right's revenge because of Obama. In what way are you a mirror image of Milo Yiannopoulos? (laughs) What do you mean? Well, you understand... um, what really struck me early on in the conversation and then I must admit my mind wandered because you you raised another great point was that your when you use language and I was very struck by the, the first line um of your book the first two lines of your book milo would say exactly the same he would say i'm just being playful i am looking at a great western tradition of, um, throwing rotten vegetables and fruit at, uh, my opponent. But you know I, But, but, you know, take, take it in good stead. Surely you have the rhetorical powers, the intellectual powers to be able to combat that. This is just playful fun. I don't think you're a mirror of mine or Yaninopoulos at all, right? But it's just, it's, it's just good to circle back that initial. Um, argument that should we not really, as leftists, you know, go high when they go low? To misquote Michelle Obama,
5: I, you know, if he did try to make that argument to me, and he did not when I met him, <laughs> and he has not in the few times uh-huh. that I have tried to communicate with him. Um, <laughs> if he did, though, I would point out that it does kind of circle back to what you're arguing for, you know. Mm -hmm. I yes, I use saucy language. I am not. I'm trying to do it in a way to rattle the cages, right? Not to, um, not to degrade certain classes of people just for who they are. And he is very much not doing that. You know, his invective um, on on Breitbart, for instance, was not you know, he would write articles basically just castigating women for just basically existing, right? Or not being submissive. He would denounce feminists, um, and mock them for, I would consider incredibly reasonable efforts to include women in the mainstream of society and, and treat women like equals. He would, um, Tell lies, which I think is something that I certainly don't do, right? Um, and and it's immoral behavior that, like that, that I think is is critical. And I, I do think sometimes there is a tendency in our political discourse to look at things only on the surface level and not ask the hard questions about what's underneath it. And that is where I, I really wish – I would really like to focus more attention because I think using a naughty word in service of racism is a very different thing than using a naughty word in service of anti-racism. And I think that um, our, you know, t- telling lies about people is a significantly immoral act um, that making fun of them is not in the same way.
2: It's not a birth certificate, Candy. And people are trying to figure out why isn't he giving his birth certificate. It's not a birth certificate. A certificate of live birth, and you can see that one that you have and the one that I brought you because that's the one that's on the internet and all over the place, it doesn't even have a serial number. It doesn't have a signature. It doesn't have a signature. One that I saw on television has a stamp But that's not a signature. Right,
3: but that's how they Excuse
2: me, but that's not the one that they were showing to everybody. And I just say very simply, why doesn't he show his birth certificate? Why has he spent over $2 million in legal fees to keep this quiet and to keep this silent? When I listened today to the tape of the grandmother... And she was saying he was born essentially in Kenya. And then all of a sudden, don't forget, this is when Barack Obama was hot as a pistol because it looked like he was going to get the nomination. And they had a lot of people, and a lot of handlers in there. And all of a sudden you hear people all over the room. No, no, no. He was born in Hawaii. He was born in Hawaii.
4: Could you give us some level of um, shine some light on the whole birtherism story that Donald Trump didn't invent but he definitely picked that ball up and ran with it, to use an American sporting analogy. Um, half of the listenership of this podcast um, is British, so uh, won't be aware of some, some of the nuance w- within that whole kind of controversy. But there's fundamentally a lie. How, is that, how, is, how did the right then propagate that, use technology, etc., cetera, um, and how did that actually fuel um right-wing resistance um to the obama presidency
5: well birtherism of course is you know for those who aren't completely familiar with uh, american politics what it was was for most of president obama's presidency there was a group of people and it really escalated i'm not exactly if I remember exactly what years, it's not really relevant. It really escalated sort of in the middle of this presidency when Donald Trump used his celebrity to promote this conspiracy theory on Fox News, ABC News, other places like that. And what it is is that Barack Obama is not a legitimate nat- like natural-born U.S. citizen, that he was not actually born in Hawaii, as he said, that his birth certificate was fake, that he is somehow... Not eligible to be president by dint of his birth. Most of them believe he was born in Kenya. Some of them believe he was born in Indonesia. It doesn't really matter. What birth, I think, like a lot of conspiracy theories, what's more important about birtherism is not the sort of particulars of the conspiracy theory, but like the emotional message it was trying to convey. And what it was was that Barack Obama is not a legitimate American and not a legitimate person to be president and it was a way for people who believe that only white men should be president to talk about that belief without coming right out and saying it and Mm. and i think that what's interesting to me was during the time that it was really gaining a lot of media traction very few people in the media were like, there was an unwillingness to talk about the ugly impulse behind pertherism in a lot of the media, really the only journalists I, I saw who were willing to talk about that were themselves black and, and were are not messing around about this. Right. Um, and I think that it, it, it gets back to It's a critical thing to understand because there's a lot of evidence that people that espouse birtherism as a view don't actually literally believe that Barack Obama faked his birth certificate, right? (laughs) There's actually evidence that it depends on how you phrase the question to conservatives' whether or not they will say that they believe that he faked his birth certificate. If you, if you phrase it as like, you're trying to quiz them on how well they know the news, they'll, they'll answer that he was born in Hawaii. But if you phrase it in terms of like culture war, they'll, they're more likely to, to say that they believe in birtherism. And Donald Trump himself is a lot like this. He plays a game. Like, do I believe it? Do I not? Sort of depends on who's asking. Right. Um, What's going on in people's head, I I couldn't tell you, but what all this does say to me is that conspiracy theories and fake news and a lot of this stuff is less about people actually being snookered and a lot more about people seeking anything that reinforces their values and adhering to it, whether it's true or not, and really being ultimately indifferent to whether it's true or not.
4: You use the phrase culture war there, which is something which um, is a phrase which gets used all the time in American political discourse and and debate, not so much in the UK. Um, Give us two or three um, big dividing lines between the cultural the cultural war, which is going on in the United States. What what are the totems?
5: Race. It's ultimately, I think, mostly about race Um, You know, the main main issue with the culture war is that a certain group of white Christian-identified—it used to just be Protestant, but now there's a lot of Catholics—kind of conservative Americans sort of view people like themselves as the real Americans— and other people as not. And the primary people that they view as somehow less American are Black Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans. Um, But culture war, I think, also encompasses certain kinds of cultural signifiers. So there's, there is what you'd call an intra-white battle that's developed and it's, it's gotten worse in, in the past couple decades. And, you know, I say this as a white person myself. So, you know, I'm on one side of the culture war and sort of conservative white people are on the other. They they definitely see white liberals as somehow being in cultural tension with them. And I do think that does go back to race because one thing, a lot of white liberals that are in cultural tension with conservative whites about is racism and, and how socially acceptable it is. Right. Um, The other, you know, the other sort of big aspect of this is gender and sexuality. Um, On one side of the divide, you have a lot of people that, for lack of a better term, believe in patriarchy. Um, How they interpret that is very individualistic and diverse, I would say. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there's still the sense that women's role in life is to be more subservient and submissive and men are the meant to be the leaders and the makers of the world, right?
4: Sure, surely that argument, Amanda, is more couched in terms of women are have, um inviolable differences than, than men isn't it? that's the way that it's kind of framed there's that guy from google whose name i cannot remember who was sat from google writing that memo you know and it's trying to dress it up in a kind of a pseudo science it's a case of men are more like this women are more like that hence the differences in society
5: yeah um that is absolutely true and I would just simply argue that a lot of that kind of discussion is, is euphemism. Um, people say mm-hmm. differences cause they don't want to say, they don't when they say women are different, that's because they don't want to say women are inferior or they'll say, you know, you're both equal, but you know, her role is, and then it's a bunch of stuff that men don't want to do like domestic work, you know, scuttle work, shit work. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, I don't know who that fools (laughs) and I don't even know that it matters because when it comes to culture war, that's obviously a huge divide. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much on that, but I think, um, I've been reading this book called down girl by Catherine Mann, And I think she has some really intelligent thoughts about what she calls the sort of scientific arguments for sexism, Um, and, and it is interesting to me because I do know that a lot of the people that say that the gender differences are static and inviolable yet spend a lot of time policing those gender differences and trying to force gender differences on people that they claim are natural. Right. And I, I, I find Mm -hmm. that to be a, a contradiction in terms, right. I, I, I don't. I don't need somebody to police me because, into having blue eyes if I, you know, because I was just born with blue eyes. And yet I'm still policed day in and day out to act like how women are supposed to naturally act, which suggests that it's not natural at all or, or the people that make that argument do not
0: think so.
4: Amen, sister.
0: real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
4: Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have David
3: Crowther of The History of England. It
4: was the best of times, it was the worst of it. She was the people's
3: princess to fight on the beaches. Away oh, man, these are the things that made England. She'll fight on the
2: landing ground. These
3: are the things that made I England. Have a body but of a weak and evil woman.
2: These are the things that made England. And the
3: king of England too. These are the
4: things that made England. Cry God for Harry. And these are the things that made England. England and St George.
0: These are the things that made England.
4: It gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah, But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do scar.
3: For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia.
4: The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England
3: as she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of.
4: Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive
3: go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let us do it. It was the best of times, it was the worst. She wants the people's princess. A fight on the beaches. away oh, man, these are the things that made England. A fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. Have a body but of a weak and evil woman.
2: These are the things that made England. And the
3: king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry
4: God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England and Saint George
0: These are the things that made England.
4: Now, um just just lastly, those um Great kind of section on your book about healthcare, and that's definitely one of the dividing points of the American its kind of culture war. That on the left there is a conversation about universal healthcare, uh, which has been rattling on, but kind of growing uh, getting ever louder with each passing year, and people on the right see that as something which is distinctly anti American. The the history of um the affordable care act in the united states was that um the right labeled it as obamacare as you so uh, kind of going to eloquently put in, in your book in a way to kind of damn the uh, damn the act straight away and there were numerous uh acts of congress to uh, dismantle obamacare during uh, the presidency of obama why is it with all this pent-up rage and with the Republicans having all levels of government under their control, couldn't they get rid of something like Obamacare considering that they've had Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Fox News railing against it for some eight years and they have uh, the president, the, you know, the orange the orange president-in-chief at the head of the government? Doesn't that kind of really tell us that they couldn't do it, that actually... Um, people on the right cannot, do not actually want to vote against their own kind of self-interest in the end, and that, dare I say it, we've won that war as well, us, us on the left.
5: Yeah, I would say very much so. And you saw the the same thing happen in the uh, George W. Bush administration when he tried to take a sledgehammer to Social Security, which is our old-age pension Um, plan here in the United States, Um, his own voting base retaliated against him. And I think that the healthcare debate is even an even better illustration of exactly the kind of troll nation politics I'm talking about, these culture war politics, because there's no evidence, and I'm sure, you know, as a British person who has access to national health services, you're quite aware of this. There's no evidence that voters don't want affordable health (laughs) care. And so instead of actually trying to make straightforward arguments against affordable health care, Republicans, that, that, that kind of libertarian, you know, small government Republicans who are a minority within their own party, plug it into these culture war politics. They, either imply that it's socialized health care, which to in, in the United States, I think, is a term that is pretty racialized. Um, they, they imply that it's basically a big wealth transfer from white people to black people. And they do it in these ways that I think may not be really obvious to people that don't know the dog whistles and euphemisms, but are very obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Um,
4: I think that they... Amanda, can you give us an example of one of those dog whistles? Yeah.
5: So, for instance, when Obamacare was um, first being debated, the Affordable Care Act was first being debated, a very common ad that you would see in the United States would be an ad suggesting that emergency room lines were going to get significantly longer if this passed into law, right? Mm -hmm. And they would have pictures of people standing in line to sort of be like, look at this terrible line that you're going to have to wait in for the ER. And you would have, the lines would be racially mixed lines. Again, on its surface, doesn't necessarily say anything to somebody who doesn't think in the sort of highly racialized terms that um, I think really motivate a lot of conservative America but if you're looking at it through their eyes, what what they're interpreting that as is a bunch of people of color are going to start getting in on the healthcare system, and there won't be any left for me. And I mean, I, I know that in the debate about Brexit, similar rhetoric rhetoric was used, sort of pitting you know immigrants against native-born English people in terms of who gets access to healthcare services. So it, it's it, it's something that you can sort of subtly wink at in your media and then just know that people, you know, at the bar or at dinner or at the dinner table are going to be more explicit about it. And I would also Amanda, not... let,
4: let me stop you, Amanda. Right. You're, you're, you're crediting us Brits with a whole level of subtlety which we did not have in that debate. It was very clear we do not want those Poles, Bulgarians, Slovaks, Romanians coming over here and using our healthcare services. There was no subtle <laughs> nods and winks at all, it was out and out racism. But as you were, Madam, Sorry. <laughs> that's,
5: fair. that's fair. In this country, uh, you can just wink at it on Fox News and know that you know your viewers will do the do the the rest um, for themselves. Uh, you know, I would actually say just calling it Obamacare to you um, was very much a, a racially loaded term. Um, it, and the my point of comparison here is that another kind of racist myth amongst. White conservatives is this idea of the Obama phones. Uh, there's this myth that Barack.
4: I, I've got mine, by the way. I, I, I got mine. <laughs> when I came over that Mexican border, as I was just saying to you before, before we uh, actually hit record, um, the immigration officer did give me my Obama phone when, when I when I came in. He said, "You're a person of color. You need this to operate in the United States." <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs>
5: I love it. I love it. But yeah, I mean, so you, you definitely get what I'm saying, which is like putting the word Obama in front of anything was a way of making it sound black <laughs> to to a certain segment of American society. And so it was kind of using racially, in that particular case, barely lo- like concealed, barely <laughs> euphemistic politics to distract people from the boring policy mm-hmm. discussion about affordable health care.
4: All right. So um, let's try and make the world a better <laughs> place. I think that's what us lefties always really want to do, don't we? We see the inherent kind of inequalities in the world, and uh, we want to at least equalize as many of them as possible so that everybody has uh, an access to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God, I can't believe I'm a Brit and I actually <laughs> said that. But anyway... Um, so, how are we going to dismantle Troll Nation?
5: This is, you know, this is the question you dread, right? Um, I think my answer, and you know, I, I discuss in the book, is I, I think that we would be foolish to believe that you can talk people out of believing things that they want to believe, right? I think it would be foolish to think that there's a way to condescend to or manipulate conservatives into viewing political situations differently than they do. They have their reasons for acting the way they do, believing what they do. And until those reasons change, I don't really see the behavior changing. That said, I think that we can organize to defeat them. And that's the only real way to kind of go about this. You know, you can't go through them. You got to go around them. And I'm impressed by the fact that I do think a lot of people have kind of realized this after Trump's election. Um, I particularly want to single out the kids of the Parkland school shooting, these activists who have really risen up to like demand more gun control in the United States. They grasp that you should not try to argue with conservatives who are arguing in bad faith. They they just simply give them the hand and say, you know, I'm not dealing with you. Go away. You're a fool and you're a clown. And I think that that's unfortunate. I wish that wasn't how you had to deal with the right. I wish there was like more of an ability for like reasoned discourse. But this, I, I feel like they unilaterally said no to that and right now what the left has to do is accept that and organize around that issue
4: Uh, Amanda Marcotte thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and um, the book is out when? April 24th yippity doo da day, folks. So go get the book. Um, I presume it's on Amazon. Well, I don't know presume about it. It's on Amazon and it'll be sold in all good bookshops. Now, um, why don't you tell us about the uh, the other things that you're up to at the moment and how people can maybe catch up with your work on the social media?
5: Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter at Amanda Marcotte make it nice and simple for people and I'm a politics writer at Salon so you can never
4: heard of that what what is this is some some kind of uh, undercover blog or some, something or another
5: <laughs> yeah
4: yeah <laughs> map of your podcast
5: <laughs> um yeah it says salon.com a 20 something year old website or <laughs> one of the oldest around <laughs>
4: An of, again thank you for coming on to mid-atlantic folks why don't you go and write us a review we have precious few of them considering that this thing gets downloaded in its droves remember we are the pinko lefty do the right thing black lives matters equality resistance to hate and ignorance and war building bullshit podcast so go on to itunes or a podcatcher of your choice and write us a review this has been mid-atlantic um you can follow us on the twitters where we are at mid-atlantic show yes i'm dreadful at tweeting but just show some solidarity by just following us uh you can also find us on facebook by typing in mid-atlantic show we'll see you all again soon oh by the way i'm royfield brown oh that was great thank you
5: thank you i had a great time
4: Oh, you say that to everybody here you interview to plug your book. <laughs>
5: <laughs> it's true, it's true. I mean, it's always fun talking to you about your uh, work, so, right?
2: <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.